Let's pray together. Psalm 25, verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Father, as we come to you and we come to receive your word, we pray that you would work in every heart in this room a a spirit of humility as we receive what you have for us. Father, we don't want and we don't need, yeah, the ideas or opinions of, of some man. We don't need the trends of whatever's popular around us. Father, we want to be fixed around the truth of your word, and we want to humbly come and receive it. And so now as we open it, Father, we ask for your blessing on this time. You would speak through your word, and you would mold us into the image of your son. We pray those things in his name. Amen. Ah, Well, one of the more popular subjects of debate in any sport revolves around the simple question, who's the GOAT? Uh, So if you're unfamiliar with this terminology, the GOAT is the greatest of all time. Okay, GOAT. You see how that works there? GOAT. Greatest of all time. It's the best to ever play the game. That's that's the GOAT. And every sport kind of has its own internal debate over who its GOAT is. Uh, And just to save us all some time, I'm just going to very briefly give you the answers, the correct answers for several of the major sports in America. Okay. Baseball, Babe Ruth. Come on. I'm not expecting any angry emails about that one. It's it's pretty straightforward. We're all on board. Okay. Babe Ruth, he's he's the GOAT. Football, Tom Brady. Some of you don't like that, but he has seven championship rings and he can show all seven of them to you and say, I don't care what you think about whatever. Uh, he is the GOAT. I mean, he, goes, he wins championship. This team leaves, goes to this other team. Oh, wins a championship. Amazing. You don't have to like him. Uh, as a lifelong Chicago Bulls fan, this isn't even a discussion. I know Michael Jordan is the GOAT of basketball. I will not hear anyone talk about LeBron or whoever else. I don't care. Michael Jordan is the GOAT of basketball. That's just a fact. And I'm not biased, but it's just it's the truth. Uh, Jared will probably tell you that Messi is the GOAT of soccer. I'm not going to get into that one for two reasons. One, because uh, I don't know anything about soccer. And two, I'm a good American and I don't care about soccer. So, like, why? Well, I'm not going to waste time. Uh, those, those are your answers to the perennial question, who is the GOAT uh, for several of the major sports? I could have gone to hockey, but anyway. You, you're Texans. You guys don't care about hockey. Uh, all right. <laughs> I didn't expect that. Okay. Uh, I'm from Chicago. We, I, we love hockey, but I figure Texans, whatever. Okay. In our passage today, the reason I talk about that, in our passage today, we're going to find that that is the very question the disciples ask Jesus. They basically ask him, so, who's the goat? Right? They want to know. They come to him and they say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're not talking about baseball or football. They want to know who the goat of goats is, right? Uh, and, and Jesus actually, through the course of our passage, answers their question. He doesn't name a name, but he does give two identifying qualities of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to give them to you now, and then we'll, our, that's going to be our outline. We'll walk through them one at a time. So 
first quality of greatness in the kingdom of heaven is humility towards yourself. Humility towards yourself. And the second quality is hatred towards sin. Those are the two things Jesus is going to show us count as greatness in his kingdom. Humility towards yourself and hatred towards sin. That's our outline for today. So we're in the 18th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has been teaching his disciples and our passage begins, as I've already uh, indicated, with them asking him a question. Verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is that perennial question. Who's the goat? Uh, and as I've already said, this is really, when, when, they, when they say greatest of all time, the disciples, they're really emphasizing the all time part of it. Because we're not talking about some sport that they invented like 100 years ago that we happen to like in America. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about the goat of goats, the greatest of all time of all time. They want to know, who are the big shots in heaven? Who are the big shots? And I think I can fairly well guess where this question's coming from. They've been hanging out with Jesus. They're his 12 disciples. They've each been called by him and they've probably realized at this point, this dude is for real. Like we've been hanging out with the Messiah, the one who Israel has been waiting for, who, who God's people have been longing for. We got him. Here he is. This is, the, this is the Messiah. And some of them, a couple, a chapter ago actually, saw his divine glory in the transfiguration. And so they, they know he's the real deal. And they're probably expecting Jesus to say, when he, they asked who's the greatest, they're probably him, expecting him to say, you guys. Because they're like, he picked us. We're the inner circle. I mean, we're his 12 disciples. The Messiah came to earth and we're the 12 dudes he wanted to hang out with. Obviously, we're going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's a, it's a classic case of, of like trying to ride the coattails. You know, like you hear examples like of, you know, I knew this guy in high school and he became super famous and now I'm going to pretend we were really close, although I, I really barely even knew him, Right. Uh, so that's what they're trying to do. That they're assuming the power positions of eternity are up for grabs. So who better than the 12 disciples to get them? That's what they're thinking. Obviously, it's an arrogant, self-centered assumption. And Jesus, as only Jesus can do, is going to both answer the question and expose its arrogance. So look at verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus does is he, he calls in a visual aid. He calls a child, the word here, it's, it's usually a, it would be a young child, maybe three or four years old. And the text says, he put him, the child, in the midst of them. So 12 grown men and one small little child. That's the visual Jesus wants them to have. So I, I, I told my wife, maybe I should call Charlie, my three-year-old up on stage, uh, and maybe our, our deacons and elders, which by the way is 12 in total because we're very biblical here, um, right? Have them all and say, just look at Charlie. He's so small, right? Um, but you, you can just imagine, right? We're not going to do that. Um, but that's, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's giving them a, a visual comparison because think of what that, that child among 12 grown men 
would look small, insignificant, weak, and out of place. And Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to be great in my kingdom. This is what, it, this is what the comparison is. When you, when you compare it with the world, it looks like weakness and insignificance. That is what I'm calling you toward. Actually, in fact, he's, he's taking them a step back. He's, he's not even yet, he does in the next verse. Uh, he's not yet talking about who's the greatest. He's just talking about getting into the kingdom. Notice he says, this is what you need to enter the kingdom. So we're just talking about admission. We're like, we're, we're at the, fr- the, the front, the starting line here. We're not even further into talking about what, once you're in there, what greatness looks like, although it's the same answer we're going to see. But he says two things are necessary to, to entering, just to get into the kingdom. The first is you must turn. You must turn. Did you notice that word? That's such an important word. He says, unless you turn. So there's an assumption here. Jesus is saying, you're already going the wrong way. You need to turn around. You need to change course because I already know you're heading the wrong direction. Pride is at home in every human heart. Jesus doesn't need to really even know these disciples very well to know that, of course, pride is in their hearts. I've mentioned before that I, I coach my oldest son's soccer team, uh, and uh, even, though, even though I don't know anything about soccer, uh, but I can't teach five-year-olds the basics, right? Uh, and one thing I have never taught our players to do is trash talk and showboat. But guess what they do every time they score a goal? Not every time, but I mean, it happens. Right? Or last, last season in the spring, we were playing this poor team, and there was, like, we scored like 16 goals on them. Uh, and like, they only had like three players that were just so tired and so exhausted. And we're scoring like goal number 17 and like jumping and cheering and like, woo, we're amazing, while the other kids are crying on the ground. Right? Like, I didn't teach them to do that, but it comes naturally. Pride comes naturally to every human heart, just as it comes to those kids, and it comes naturally to you and to me. Before we can even begin to pursue the humility necessary to entering the kingdom, we must first confess and turn from our pride. As C.S. Lewis says, the first step in humility is to realize you are proud. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. He's saying, Jesus knows. You must turn because of course you're proud. Of course you're wrapped up in yourself. Of course you want greatness on your own terms. Of course that's what you're really after in your heart. So you must turn. And then the next thing you must do, Jesus says, is to become like children. Now, clearly, he doesn't mean children aren't proud. He knows five-year-olds like to brag when they're playing soccer, right? But this is a visual aid, right? The, the, the little child that he put in their midst. This is what humility looks like. It has this visual effect. When it's in the world, by comparison, it looks insignificant. It looks pathetic, even. That's what you can expect to look like, Jesus is saying. You can look like a three-year-old among about 12 grown men. See, in our world today, we, we love comparison. It's so common out there, but it is so common in the church too. And the way we do it is we like to, 
pick who we make the comparisons with. So we, I mean, everyone likes to, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whatever, we, we read about the messed up lives of celebrities, right? Because it makes us feel great, right? Divorces and estrangements and drama and, you know, ignorant political statements or whatever, we're, we feel kind of big standing next to them. Like, wow, we're, we're doing all right. We're, we're definitely further along than they are. We got our lives a lot more in order than that. But the problem is, of course, we are picking the comparison when the Bible offers us a different comparison that we must consider. Isaiah chapter 40. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Right, that's God. He's supreme. He's the goat. Who are we? Isaiah tells us, verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. God's the goat and we're the grasshoppers. That's the image the Bible gives us. That's the comparison it offers. Because th this, this is what true humility looks like. There's all kinds of false humility in our world of just, of, that's really just another kind of self-centeredness. But this is true humility. It's an accurate appraisal of yourself and your place in the world in relation to God. It knows who God is, and in light of that, it knows who you are. It recognizes that God alone is supreme. God alone is great. He's the goat. So like children, we are weak in comparison, and we depend on him for everything. Andrew Murray, who wrote a really good book on humility, defines it like this. Humility is the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. It's the disappearance of self in the vision that God is all. That's what it means. Verse four, and whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's the answer to their question, right? And it's the same as entering the kingdom. It's, it's the same It's the same. Ethic. Admission is, of course, what matters because all are great in glory. Just worry about getting in. Have the humility necessary to enter, and you will be great in the kingdom. Our world is obsessed with being great. We, we want to be the, you want to be the goat of whatever your thing is. You, of course, want to be the goat. And we measure greatness by our, our strength, our cunning, our wealth, our, our influence, our followers, whatever kind of earthly metric you want to give it. But the reality in light of scripture is that our pitiful earthly trophies will one day turn to dust and not one of them will last. And there is, however, a path to true greatness that will last. There is a path to true greatness that will stand the tests of time and the kingdom of heaven will be proven to be true. And Christ shows us that path. And, and what we find very simply is that the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven are completely upside down of one another. That greatness here is the opposite of greatness in God's kingdom. 
There's a, a famous Puritan prayer. I just love this. You should get the whole book. It's called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of prayers. But the very first one, which is titled The Valley of Vision, it, it just captures this reality of the, the, the greatness of humility in the kingdom of God. This is, this is what it says. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox. The way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart. That the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit. That the repenting soul is the victorious soul. That to have nothing is to possess all. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That's what greatness looks like in the kingdom of Christ. So my question, brothers and sisters, is will you embrace that path? Will you embrace that path, the way down, which is the way up? See, even if we reject all the, all the worldly measures of greatness, even if we look, oh, yeah, sure, yeah, it's not about money, it's not about power, it's not about Instagram followers or, or whatever, we can still Christianize the whole ethic of it and fall into the exact same trap. We can, in the church, we can worry, who's the holiest, right? Who knows the most theology? Who's raising their kids the best, right? We, we, get, we get captured and wrapped up in such a, such a, a self-centered focus, uh, worrying about who's the greatest, and that will destroy us, brothers and sisters. If that's, if that's how we view our life together as a church, we will consume and destroy one another, I read this past week about a, a pastor of a, a really great, thriving church in, in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, who had, he had a, got a, he's got a lo lot of young guys in his church who all want to be pastors themselves. They all kind of aspire. I, when I get older, I, you know, I want to be a pastor too. I want to preach the word. And, and during uh, an evening devotional, uh, he, he said, hey, raise your hand if, you're, if you'd like to preach in the evening service next Sunday. And like dozens of hands go up. And then he said, how many of you are serving in the nursery? And the hands go down. Because everyone wanted the stage, but no one wanted to serve. By the way, do you know Carl always needs volunteers in the nursery? <laughs> he didn't tell me to say this, but it's true. Even in the church, we get caught up in, in worldly measures of greatness. We, we might baptize it and Christianize it and act like, oh, it's a great thing. Of course, it's good to aspire to be a pastor. But if you're not willing to, to serve in the mo more humble areas of a church, why do you think God would call you to that? We must turn from pride and embrace humility. And so how do we do that? Well, Jesus actually gives us a, a really really practical way. So verse five, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. To grow in humility, gather with the humble. 
When you embrace others in their weakness, you are embracing Christ. It requires true humility to welcome those who look weak in the eyes of the world. Of course, again, even in the church, oh, oh, interesting. You, know, you, you have such a nice house and you have all this influence. Let's hang out. Let's be friends, right? We, we naturally just gravitate towards those who in the world might be thought of as great. And yet Christ commands the exact, exact opposite. We must embrace and welcome those who are humble, who look weak and insignificant, maybe who have pain and scars and profound imperfections that are, that are fairly obvious to everyone around them. I mean, you know, you know how this, this goes. Maybe you're in a Bible study or a community group or, or whatever, and, and someone shares something maybe personal, maybe a little ugly, a little awkward. Ooh. And you have this decision. Do I disassociate? Or do I do what Jesus commands and embrace those with the integrity to show their own weakness? Do I welcome the little children as Christ did? If we are to be a humble church, brothers and sisters, we must welcome those in humility who are willing to show their, show their own weakness and we must be people too who show our own weakness with one another. That's the scary thing. That's terrifying in a lot of ways. But I want us to look at the fuel that Christ gives us, which is his own perfect humility. So Jesus says that to receive the humble is to receive him. Why? What is that? Why why could that be? Why, Why could it be that receiving the humble is to receive Christ? Well, very simply, because there is no one higher who has gone lower. Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account, account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus doesn't command humility without going there First, no one is higher and no one has ever gone lower than him. So the answer to the disciples' question, ironically, who's the greatest? You're looking at him. You're talking to him, disciples. He's the greatest and you're about to see how low he's going to go for you. And one day we will all see how high he will be raised. Look at the very next words in Philippians 2. Therefore, In light of that humility, in light of how low he went, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the greatest of all time. And that's the best news we could ever hear, not just because we have an example, because we get to follow him in humility, although we do, but because his own humility is what purchased our glory. See, the problem with the the comparison game, trying to outpace one another, right, is, is only one can be great. Only one can be great, right? If if Jordan's the goat, it means LeBron's not. We crowd each other out when we pursue our own 
greatness, but Jesus' glory, Jesus' greatness does not work like that. In fact, the glory that flows from Christ's humility doesn't crowd us out. It is actually the very thing that makes our glory possible. Humility is how you enter the kingdom because it means abandoning self in the vision that Christ is all. That nothing in that my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. As another old hymn put it, to the, best, to the blessed fountain of thy blood incarnate God I fly to wash my soul from scarlet stains in sins of deepest dye. A guilty, weak, and helpless worm into thy hands I fall. Thou art the Lord my righteousness, my savior and my all. Christ's humility is what purchased our glory, brothers and sisters. So in following him, may we too embrace humility and know that it is truly the path to greatness. That's not all Jesus says here. That's the first virtue he would commend us to if we would be great in his kingdom. But he also can't talk about greatness without also talking about hatred for sin. About hatred for sin. It's actually, for Jesus, it's something that humility naturally flows into. It just, just, I mean, there's, there's not even a really, there's not a period between the two. He just, he just moves right into this. So verse six, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. This is one of only a few times, I think, in Jesus' ministry where you can detect some genuine anger in him. Uh, it, it may not jump out to you right as I, I read that, but just, just look at verse six. This, this is almost hyperbolic, exaggerated language, right? He, he just kind of keeps going. So he, he imagines this crazy scenario, right? Not just where someone's tied to a millstone, but a great millstone. And, and not just that, it's not just, they're not just tied to it, it's fastened around their neck. And not just that, but they are drowned with it. And not just drowned, but drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus just keeps going and going. The whole thing could have been much shorter. He could have just said, it would be really bad if you lead someone else to sin. But he needs, he has this, he has this special fury on this topic. So he lays it on. What's going on here? What's, what's he talking about? Well, first, clearly, he's talking about temptation. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, right? it's about enticement. It's about leading someone else into ungodliness. So actually, the word there, uh, Jesse talked about this last Sunday. I don't know why I'm pointing behind me. He was standing right here. Uh, Jesse was, last Sunday, talked about the word scandalizo. In, in last week's passage, talked about uh, giving someone offense, uh, here, it, it, it has its kind of more traditional meaning, which is, uh, comes from setting bait in a trap. That's the image there, setting bait in a trap. So it's, it's, this, it's this image of an invitation towards sin, putting, putting the bait out in front of someone to catch them. Now, to be clear, uh, Jesus knows you can't, 
You can't make someone else sin. You're not responsible in, in a, a moral sense for their guilt if they give in to temptation. If they sin, temp- he says, even verse seven, temptations are necessary. They're unavoidable. It's going to happen. You don't sin because you were tempted. You sin because you love sin. You, you, the wolf eats the steak because that's what its nature wants. But Jesus is saying, Don't be the guy who puts the steak on a plate right in front of the wolf. Don't put the bait in the trap. Don't make sin available. Beware leading others into temptation. Because sin may be unavoidable, but don't be the one who makes it available. And specifically, he says here, don't do that for one of these little ones who believe in me. One of these little ones who believe in me. And me. Now, plainly, that refers to the humble followers of Christ, Christians. They're the little ones who have the humility to enter the kingdom, who say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That is, that is what it means to be a Christian, to have that humility of, of denying yourself and the vision that Christ is all. But I do need to do just a, a very brief theological aside here uh, just to save us, I think, some trouble uh, ahead, down, down the path ahead, uh, we, we might get into some trouble if we don't recognize what this passage is saying. So in the next chapter, Matthew verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 14, Jesus says something very similar. Uh, he says, let the little children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, uh, which is a favorite proof text of our paedo-baptist brothers and sisters. So uh, Presbyterians and a couple other Anglicans, a couple other denominations that would advocate for uh, sprinkling babies uh, and, and at giving the, the, the sign of baptism to them. Uh, and their argument is, see, I mean, this is not, to be clear, this is one of like many more arguments. This is just one little thing, but I think it's worth noting. Uh, their argument is, if Jesus welcomes the little children, so should we, uh, because, uh, because Jesus says the, to the, the kingdom belongs to them, it is acceptable to baptize babies. But the problem is, it, it just doesn't say what they want it to say, because I think very clearly, when we get to Matthew 19, we need to remember Matthew 18, where Jesus says, one of these little ones who believe in me. This is about those who have put their faith in him. That's the key to understanding this passage and the one in Matthew 19. If, if baptism is the sign of entrance into the new covenant, which everyone agrees on, whatever your viewpoint is, that's, everyone agrees with that, you can't be a member of the new covenant, according to Jesus here, without believing in the Lord of the new covenant. So when he says, the little ones who believe in me, he's not talking about little children, he's talking about those with childlike humility and Faith. Uh, that's okay. That's just the aside. That's with genuine love for my Pato Baptist brothers and sisters. One of my best friends in seminary is a Presbyterian, and I love him. And we would argue about this, and it was great. Um, but he's wrong. That's okay. I love him. All right. Jesus is delivering a warning here, uh, a very stern warning. He says, "Woe to the world for temptation to sin. Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes." And then this millstone illustration in verse six shows us how serious he is about this. He says that horrible, inescapable, terrifying, I mean, imagine that, a millstone around your neck, not just a millstone, a great one, not just drowned, but drowned in the depths of the sea. That terrible judgment, it would be better for that to fall on you than that you lead one of his followers into sin. 
The main question we need to ask is what is happening in Jesus? Why does this of all things set him off? Why, what are we seeing in Jesus's heart here? And very simply, this is the righteous fury of love. That's what we see in Jesus, the righteous fury of love. This is mama bear anger, don't mess with my cubs. Now, to be clear, Jesus doesn't just flip his lid and get angry and yell, right? It's controlled, it's righteous, it's specific. He knows exactly uh, what he's angry about. It's not just this like, ah, I hate the world kind of thing, which would be ungodly. It's righteous. And I'm going to give you three reasons in particular why this is so upsetting to Jesus, why his love leads him to this fury. And first is because of the enemy, Jesus knows exactly where temptation comes from. He knows where temptation comes from because he was there. In Genesis 3, when the serpent slithered up to God's people and invited them to sin, he enticed them, he set the bait. And Jesus has fought that enemy for a long, long time. So, of course, he hates temptation. Second, This is upsetting to Jesus because of his mission. He came to destroy sin. He came to crush the serpent's head. He came to pay the penalty for sin, to break its power over his people, to do war with sin. So an enticement to sin is exactly the opposite. He's taking his people the other direction. So of course he hates when you take take his people away from where he wants them to be. And then third, and Primarily, I think in this passage, Jesus is so upset simply because he loves his people. He loves his people. Sin destroys followers of Christ. It robs them. It kills them. And no one knows that better than Jesus. No one knows better what what that little temptation, that little thing that you think is a little sin, Jesus knows better than anyone how absolutely destructive it is to your soul. And he loves you and he will not abide it. If you saw a snake terrorizing your children, inflicting pain, giving them nightmares, would you be satisfied by just killing it? No, you'd probably chop it in pieces and burn it and still not be satisfied because you love your children. True love will not abide anything that would harm the beloved. And that's what we see in Jesus here. It is important to know, Christian, no one hates your sin more than Jesus. No one hates your sin more than Jesus. And if someone loves you enough to confront you about your sin, they're loving you like Jesus loves you. If we are to follow our own mission statement, display his love to one another. That doesn't just mean washing each other's feet, although it does mean that. I don't mean literally. You don't have to do that. It's okay. But people around you, brothers and sisters, will sin. It is your job as one who loves them to not lead them into sin. Don't open the trap, don't put the bait inside. So I just want to give you two quick things to help, help you do that. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are two important ways we can 
help not, we can be intentional about, about not leading one another into sin. And the first is watch your words. Watch your words. This is one of the most common biblical commands about guarding your tongue. James says, how great a fire is set ablaze by so small a spark. And he's talking about how we use our tongues. One coarse joke, a mild gossip, something you think is small can start a fire that will destroy your brothers and sisters and lead them into sin. So watch your words. Second, don't flaunt your freedom. Don't flaunt your freedom. Now, Jesse last week did just a tremendous job unpacking that that glorious truth. The the sons are free. We're we're free from moral obligations and you must do this in order to get into heaven kind of way. We are freed to obey. But be careful because it is possible, brothers and sisters, it is possible to use your freedom in a way that might lead those with a stricter conscience into sin. This is what we see in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans chapter 14. Christian freedom is never Christian right. Christian freedom is never Christian right. So a classic example, of course, would be alcohol. Uh, Another one this time of year might be Halloween. Are we we free about these things? Yes. Drinking alcohol is an area of Christian freedom. Some may choose to abstain, some may enjoy. But I have friends who have seen alcohol abused so much in their lives that it's, it's difficult, it violates their conscience when they see a Christian partake, and so I don't drink around them. Okay, I'm free, but I don't have the right. Halloween, whether or not we engage at some level with a cultural tradition, right, is an area Christians can disagree about. You're free to engage, but you don't have the right to. You don't just get to foist your freedom on others who might have a stricter conscience. That's the difference between license and liberty, right? If your freedom causes your brother to sin, you are not walking in love. You're pursuing license. Care more, brothers and sisters, care more about each other's holiness than your own freedom. That's what Christ calls us to. And that's, again, 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14. If you want to look at those passages, it's very clearly what Paul is teaching. So later in this chapter, Jesus is is going to prescribe how to fight the sin we see in one another. A famous church discipline passage towards the end of Matthew 18. But before we get to that, before we can talk about how to do that, Jesus has to say what he says here and help us hunt and kill the sin in our own hearts. We have to start with ourselves. Verse eight. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So two verses here that really say the same thing. They they mirror each other pretty well. And they, in in these two verses, Jesus is telling us what we must do. And he's telling us why we must do it. We'll start with the what. What must we do? We must cut out and throw away anything 
that tempts you towards sin. You must cut it out and throw it away. This is familiar language. Jesus used the same examples back in the Sermon on the Mount when he was talking about lust. Cut out your eyes. It's this evocative imagery, right? And he's, he's, he's talking about things that are personal and valuable. That's what he's exhorting us to. He's not literally advocating amputation. He's saying there is nothing so personal, so valuable to you that it's not worth getting rid of for the sake of killing sin. There is nothing. I'm talking about your right eye and your hand and your foot. There's nothing more personal and valuable to you than those things. And those things are not more important than killing the sin in your own life. He doesn't say, he also just doesn't say, cut it off. He says, throw it away. Get rid of it. Get it out of your life. I've heard a pastor say, you can put up a 10-foot wall, but don't go buy an 11-foot ladder. We need to cut it off and throw it away. Your fight with your own sin will require serious sacrifice. Don't give your own sinful heart an opportunity to have what it wants. This is, this is the first conversation, conversation I have anytime I meet with a guy who's struggling with pornography. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot we, could, we need to talk about, but the first thing you need to do is get rid of any kind of access. You need to get it out of your life. You need to be free of it. No matter how personal, no matter how valuable, your phone, Instagram, Twitter, whatever. And it's not just pornography. Of course, it applies there. But if your weekly lunch with a friend group always devolves into gossip, you need to stop going. Doesn't mean cut those friendships off forever. But the first thing you need to do is end your access to your own sin. If reading the news every morning makes you angry or anxious, stop. If you waste too much time watching YouTube, delete the app. Jesus is so clear here. There's nothing more personal or so personal and so valuable. It's not necessary to get rid of because there's nothing more personal and valuable than your own soul and sin destroys it. Of course, as I said, none of those things is sufficient. You can't address the heart by only cutting off a hand. They're not sufficient, but they are necessary. You must take radical measures, a scorched earth policy on your own sin. You won't, you won't even have the freedom to get down to the heart problem if you're so wrapped up in your sin. And so you need to take radical measures at the very start. If you want more help on that, two quick things. Uh, I, I taught a theological equipping here a few weeks ago on how to kill sin. Just, if you want to, I just encourage you to listen to that. If you want more, kind of more in-depth talk about that. And second, talk to someone. I have never found a better solution to killing sin than getting it in the light. It thrives in the darkness. Talk to someone about it, whatever it is. That's what we must do. But it's also important, brothers and sisters, that we know why. We must know why. Because isn't sin just a little thing? Like, what's the big deal, Jesus? Can't we just put it in the corner and not worry about it? Well, Jesus has two related answers to that question. And first, very clearly, he says we must take our sin seriously, 
because sin will send you to hell. He, he says it twice. There's no way around that. Sin will send you to hell. It is eternally damnable. That's why Jesus hates it so much. Because he loves you. You might think, why? That doesn't seem fair. You know, why, why an infinite sentence for a finite sin? Well, it's a good question. But we must always remember it's, it's a finite sin against an infinite God. That's why sin is so horrible. It's not just the crime that matters. It's who the crime is against. If you step on an ant, no judge is going to care. If you kick a dog, people might not like you. If you harm a human, you might get put behind bars. So how much worse to spit in the face of the king of the cosmos? And every sin, no matter how small we think it is, that's exactly what it does. Hell is real and terrifying, and it shows us just how serious our sin is. But we shouldn't just focus there. That's not all Jesus has for us here. There is a second, and I would argue a far grander reason why we should take sin so seriously. Look at what Jesus says here. He says, it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame. It is better for you to enter life with one eye. Why in the world does he call heaven life? He could have just said heaven. He could have said the kingdom of God. He could have said eternity. He chose to call it life when he's talking about, you know, amputation. Why? Well, for one, I think very clearly, he's reminding them that this life isn't life, like capital L, life. Like, this ain't nothing compared to that. There's a, a better hope, a higher joy, that more, more, more satisfying pleasures than anything the, the pleasures of sin could ever compete with in this world. That's one thing. But I think the other thing is Jesus, I think, is being a little bit ironic as if you could enter life crippled or lame or blind. It's called life. I mean, what? it's a place of perfect wholeness and joy. It's where you'll be with your creator who made your hands and your feet and your eyes in the first place. Do you think he's going to make you spend eternity crippled? Of course not. Of course not. It's called life. See, this is such a fuel for our war on sin, and it is essential in our path to true greatness. A few months ago, I got a hearing aid. Uh, I'm not just overly loud all the time. I am partially deaf. Uh, and I've been partially deaf since I was eight years old. I had uh, a surgery. There's just a, a tumor, not cancer, but a small growth on one of the bones in my inner ear, and they had to remove the bone. And so I've been partially deaf in my right ear ever since. And I got a hearing aid about two months ago. Uh, and the day I got my hearing aid, as I drove home and, you know, listened to music in the car, I cried and cried the entire time. I wasn't crying because the feeling of hearing was so amazing, although it was, it was stunning. I was crying because I realized there was something wrong with me that I didn't know was wrong until it was made right. I had gotten used to being partially deaf, 23 years. I just I didn't even notice it anymore. 
And I cried because I realized that when I see my Savior, all the wrong things that are just devastating my own heart, all the sins, all the, the wayward desires I've ever had will be gone. And I will be whole again. I will be made right. And I will, I will finally understand how wrong I was. I'll finally understand how the depths of the sin in my own soul because I will be made right again. I never felt the full weight of my deafness until I could hear. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, you will never truly understand what is wrong with you until Christ makes it right. And he will. We get glimpses of it, though, now, which I think is just a tremendous blessing. I think this passage, what it's calling us toward, is one of those glimpses. It pulls back reality, and it shows us the humility we need and the necessity of killing our sin. That if, that's, if that's the path to true greatness, it's telling us that you can walk it. And something amazing happens. With every sin we put to death now, we get a taste of the day when our Savior will banish it forever, when all that is wrong will be made right, and we will enter into life. That day is coming, brothers and sisters. So why in the world would we continue living for the fleeting sinful pleasures of this world when life is coming and we will be made right? So let us walk in humility as a church. Let us fight our own sin and, by God's grace, the sin we see in one another, and let us long together for the life Jesus has. Let's pray. Christ, you are a tender Savior. Even though we so frequently are wayward and foolish and wrapped up in our own sins and so blind to our own sins that we don't know how bad we are, we long for the day when we will be made right and we will see you face to face and we will know just how great your grace really is. And we thank you for the tastes we get of that now. We pray that we would walk in humility. We would kill sin so that we may more and more long for the day when we see you and enter life. Amen.